of you to turn in your Bibles to Luke, the 11th chapter. It's a new year, a new chapter, and a new study this morning. We're going to be um, considering Jesus' teaching on the subject of prayer. That's actually what Luke 11 uh, starts out with. There are the first 13 verses or so. Uh, is kind of Jesus' response to his disciples' questions uh, or question, Lord, teach us uh, how to pray. And um just want to mention, you know, for the sake of context, to bring us uh, back together where we are in Luke, toward the end of chapter 9, Luke informs us that Jesus has turned in his uh, public ministry south, from the northern regions of Galilee, headed toward Jerusalem. It's kind of a meandering path. Uh, It takes a while. It's probably within the last year of his ministry as he's making his way uh, down through uh, the Jordan Valley and the the villages and towns on either side of the Jordan River. As he's making his way down toward Jerusalem, ultimately toward the cross. And this is uh, kind of the last uh, part of his uh, public ministry, the last year. And Luke, from about chapter 10 until about chapter 19, gives us a lot of material uh, about the life of Christ that is not included in the other Gospels. And so there, there are new events and uh, new um, observations that Luke is making that the other Gospel writers did not necessarily record. He does not attempt to put all of these in chronological order. And so, uh, you know, for example, chapter 11, it happened that. Well, when did it happen? Luke does not give us any chronological markers to know when this occurred. He's just simply saying within this time period, it happened that Jesus uh, was praying in a certain place. And out of that, uh, this whole uh, teaching came on the subject of prayer. So we're going to encounter some of those where Luke felt that there were things from Jesus' ministry that needed to be recorded and needed to be remembered, but he places them uh, not necessarily in order in in these uh, chapters so we can kind of learn uh, some of these extra things. As we look at this uh, chapter, I want to read the first 13 verses for us for the sake of context, and then this morning we're going to be focusing in on the first four, but follow along as I read the first 13. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door's already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, Jesus invited at least the twelve and perhaps others as well, because we find larger groups at times, invited these people into His life to walk with Him, to to minister with Him, to observe Him, to listen to Him, to eat with Him at times where they may have been out, to even uh, to, to sleep uh, overnight wherever they were, and to just be around Him. It's a very effective way of making disciples because uh, it, it uh, takes uh, lessons given here and there and packs them all into a life that can be observed. And Jesus was a master of that, of providing a life uh, as a living example to his disciples of of what they could observe. And uh, Luke is very careful to point out to us an awful lot about Jesus' prayer life. He, He gives us insight into certain things. Like, for example, Jesus spent all night in prayer before he selected the twelve particular ones that were going to be his specific disciples, and uh, other times that he gives us information about Jesus' prayer life. Now, I want to be careful to say that Jesus is not doing anything to show off to his disciples. In other words, he's not doing anything for show. Um, He was particularly opposed to that. He he said, don't be like those Pharisees that stand on the street corner and pray. And and they think they're going to, everybody's going to see them and say, wow, what good holy people you are. Because he said, that's all the reward they're going to get. They're out for show. And Jesus was adamantly opposed to that. So he's not doing anything for show, but by inviting them into his life, to observe just the way he lives, they learn things. And Jesus has a prayer life. He has a very active prayer life. One person uh, left the uh, service at the 8 o'clock service and said, Wow, I learned something this morning. It never occurred to me that that Jesus would pray. I mean, he's, he's the man. Well, when he was on earth, he was in communion with his father as a, as a human being walking in human flesh, and he needed that connection that comes through what we call prayer. It's really nothing more than conversation with God, but it comes that way, and so they got to observe how he prayed. And on this particular occasion, Luke says he was in a certain place, and his disciples were observing him, and they saw something they wanted. They said, we want to learn to pray. You obviously know how to pray. 
We want to learn to pray. And, and we want you to teach us. John taught his disciples, and we think it's just only fair that you should teach us. And the other thing that I notice about this, and I don't think I'm stretching it too far, is that Jesus had a certain place where he prayed. He was in a certain place praying. Uh, now, he was moving around, so obviously he had to pick different places at different times. But it is not uh, too far to, to stretch to think that Jesus, whenever he was in a new location, found somewhere that he could go and kind of shut out the world and shut out the busyness and shut out the responsibilities and just meet with the Father. When I was a, a, a young disciple, I was a junior in high school, my life had just come back fully, I just turned fully back to God, and uh, where Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and pray where only your Father sees you in secret. I took that very literally. Now, I, I knew that Jesus wasn't literally saying go into the closet, but it, it seemed to work for me. I had one of these, um, you know, long closets, not too deep, but long with the bypass doors. And so uh, I went into my closet and I moved all my clothing and things that were stored to one half of it. And then I put a chair and a lamp in there. And uh, I actually made my closet a place where I could go and uh, get into the closet and close the door and turn the lamp on and have a place I could read the scripture and pray. And I, I just felt like I was shut off from all the rest of the world. And other places I've lived, I've done that. When we were in school in North Georgia, sometimes I would get up early and go to the chapel um, early in the morning and, and uh, spend time in prayer there. Or later on, the uh, Tacoa Falls uh, was uh, located on 1,100 acres of woodland. And um, there were streams and a lake and, and uh, waterfall. And there were plenty of places to walk. And I would find places that I could go. And I could just go take a walk in the woods and go to some of my favorite spots where no one ever really came by. And those were places that I could pray. I think Jesus had those places of prayer. And it's saying something to us about having a place where you can shut out everything. You know, I think it was Susanna Wesley. If I'm wrong about this, you can correct me. Um, but uh, it may have been Susanna Wesley. may have been somebody else. Had a lot of kids. Susanna had 17. That's a lot of kids. And uh, and you know that house it can be chaotic with just two or three. So when you have 17, I'm sure it was really crazy. And um, she would have a habit of praying. She would take her apron and pull it up over her head. Sit at the table and pull her apron over her head and just shut out everything. Um, you know, you're right in the middle of the kitchen and 17 kids. But hey, whatever works. You know, find a place where you can get along with God. And so Jesus obviously was doing that. And that's part of his modeling. Uh, his practice awakened a desire in the disciples, and they wanted to know how to pray the way he did. So Jesus, in response to their question, he, he gives them an answer. He says, okay, when you pray, these are the things you ought to say. And he gives them uh, what I want to call the model prayer. It's really not the Lord's prayer. The reason it's not the Lord's prayer is because Jesus would never have prayed this prayer. Um, he would never have said, 
um, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, Jesus had no sin. He didn't have any need for confession. This is not the Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. Another thing that is obvious to me as we consider it is, it was not intended to be recited. This prayer was never given as a recitation prayer. A lot of people use this prayer kind of like a, 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 you know, a magic um, incantation or something. I'm going to say this and God's going to do stuff for me. A lot of times there is an association that if I recite this prayer, uh, even though I'm not asking for this thing over here, if I recite this prayer enough, uh, somehow I'm going to store up enough, you know, recharge the lithium battery or something, and, and, and God's going to uh, shoot the juice out over here and give me this thing that I want. Uh, it becomes a vehicle, a way of kind of either atoning for sin or making up for something or somehow getting God to, to get on our team. And, uh, it, you know, you often hear people say something like, let's say in our Father. Well, you don't say in our Father. There's a, there's a model here that Jesus is giving His disciples about how to have a conversation with the Father that is intended to be taken as a guideline for communication. And as He begins to, to, to work through this, um, He indicates to us the kinds of topics that we should be concerned about in our communication with the Father. Now, if you compare Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, which is the official location of, quote, the Lord's Prayer, with this one, you find a lot of similarities. Matthew uh, gives us more detail because Jesus on that occasion was speaking to the crowds probably after he had given his disciples this shorter um, guideline, and he gets there and he embellishes it a bit. But the topics are just the same. They're the same themes that go through the prayer. And this should be encouraging to us because one of the things that should stand out to us is Jesus is saying to his disciples, here's how to pray. In doing so, he's saying in essence, you are welcome to ask these things. I invite you, the Father invites you, these are the kind of things you are welcome to ask for. So there's permission granted in Jesus' model. Here's how you should pray. And he gives us these headings that are intended to be guidelines to the topics we can include in our prayer. And one of the things that, that also strikes me is that it does not follow a sequence that many of us have been taught to expect. How many of you have heard of the Acts model for praying? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. The Acts formula. Well, first of all, anytime you hear about a formula, your, your radar should go up. You know, warning, warning should go off. Because the, the spiritual life is not intended to be formulaic. It's supposed to be natural and spontaneous. But aside from that... Um, the, the Acts model presumes that as soon as we enter the presence of God, the first thing we have to deal with is sin. So you have adoration, you have confession. You've got to deal with sin before you can talk about anything else. 
And I'm going to go out on a limb here, but uh, and some of you are going to want to quote to me the psalm that says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But I want you to remember when and when that was written and by whom. And we're not talking about uh, redeemed, cleansed, covenant children of God based on the cross. Jesus is implying something by the order that he gives, and I think it's an important implication. There is grace here. God knows whether we have sinned or not. God knows whether our sins are conscious, (laughs) deliberate, or we don't even know this much yet. We're, We're still growing, and we didn't even realize God understands where we are, but that's not the number one thing on Jesus' mind. And it should really not be the number one thing on our mind. Now, I want to be very practical with you and say, I know it's hard to pray when you have sinned. If you've sinned and you've offended God and you know it, it's hard to have a conversation with Him and pretend that doesn't exist. I I, I recognize that. And we do need to to keep short accounts with God. We need to come to terms with Him. But Jesus does not begin in His model of prayer with confession. He saves that till the end. In part, I think, because grace is already prevailing. And, and, And listen to me very carefully. If you are a child of God by virtue of new birth through your repentance and faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you are judicially clean. In a court of law, there is no charge against you. You are judicially cleansed. You don't have any crimes to atone. They have already been covered by Jesus. On a very practical level, as we very well know, if you have offended God or offended another person, there's a problem existing between you emotionally and in terms of fellowship that brings tension into your life and creates disharmony, and that needs to be addressed. So when the Scripture says, You know, confess your sins uh, one to another. Confess your sins to God. Basically, the word confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing God is saying about your action, and to recognize uh, that it has offended God, and to come onto the same page with Him, to agree with Him. And if you have a problem in your life and you are open with God about it and you talk to Him about it, then, you know, when you come to the, to the end of the, to the conversation, you say, Lord, I agree with you. What I have done is wrong. I agree with your assessment, with your judgment. I'm on the same page with you. I am really sorry. Please forgive me. And, and, and let's take this thing out from between us. That heals the, the relational bond, the emotional bond. But judicially, you had right standing with God before you ever opened your mouth because of what Jesus has done. 
And I think that Jesus is starting us out in a different place because that is not the foremost thing that we need to take care of in the, in the process of prayer. We do need to get there. But that's not the number one priority. The number one priority, Jesus says, is, first of all, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. Our, our English uh, translations, even when they try to modernize, they just can't, uh, they can't get away from it in certain, uh, you know, certain respects. But Father, how would be your name? Your kingdom come. Jesus is saying, first of all, you need to recognize there's a relationship here. You can come to God, the creator and author of the universe, and call him Father. This drove the Jews nuts. They just despised Jesus for this. It made them crazy. They wouldn't even pronounce His name. They would not say the name Yahweh. They would interpose with some way around that. Uh, Blessed be the name. Blessed be He, they would say. But they would not say Yahweh. Blessed be the name. What name? Well, we don't dare speak that name on our lips. It's too holy and too reverent. And Jesus said, when you come to Yahweh, call him daddy. Whoa, this just, they couldn't get that. That, that, that was one of their big beefs that eventually uh, propelled him toward the cross. They, he, you are too familiar with God. But I want you to know that Jesus is inviting us to come to the Creator maker of heaven and earth and all of us in it, and, and to call him our Father. And I realized as I was saying that this morning in the 8 o'clock service that there are some people that I have uh, counseled with through the years that tell me how horribly offensive it is for them to think of God as Father because their father was a train wreck. Their father was abusive. Their father was horrible. And it's hard for them to even make the connection. You know, and I want to say to you very lovingly and very respectfully, if that, if that is your experience, I have genuine empathy for you. But your dad is not this dad. Your dad may have been sinful and grievous And may have hurt you. But this father loves you and cares for you and only has your best interest at heart and has great uh, compassion for you. He is not the same. Uh, And we have to do this in a lot of respects. We need to retrain our thinking. And, and that may take a long time. I understand that. But I, even as I'm saying this, and I don't know who's here this morning, and I don't know what your history is, but if you find that offensive, God is a different kind of father, if that was your experience. Our father, oh, yes, the one who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, not only do we have a relationship with him, but Jesus says you need to pause to contemplate his character. You need to think about who he is. Before you open your mouth to to ask for anything, you need to stop and think about the one with whom you speak. 
Um, I, I heard a story a number of years ago of a fellow that was uh, sometimes asked to pray or uh, asked a blessing, uh, and I think it was in one of the one of the uh, colleges, the training colleges. And uh, whenever he would stand to pray, he he would stand up and then he would not say anything. And you know how we all love silence, right? We just love these awkward pauses where nothing's going on. You think something's supposed to be happening. And he would pause for a long time. You know, and it's like, well, he stood up, so he must have heard his name. But why is he praying? He just made everybody anxious. And then finally, after 25, 30 seconds, which can seem like an eternity when you think something's wrong, um, you know, he would start to pray. And so someone finally asked him, why is it that when you're called on to pray, you don't just stand up and pray? And he said, well, when I'm asked to pray, I need to take a moment and focus my attention and think about the one I'm about to speak to. I need to think about who he is. I need to be reminded. And and friends, listen. God is our Father. We are invited into an intimate, warm, uh, familial relationship with him. But he is not our buddy He's not the dude that we hang out with. Heard that recently. <laughs> he is our creator. He is our maker. He is holy. And in spite of the welcome we have in his presence in our intimacy, we need to remember who he is and take time to hallow him, to reverence him, to uh, praise him to contemplate his character and to think about that and and then Jesus says your first request once you have uh, come into his presence and you are focused on God your first request needs to be his concerns your kingdom come you need to be concerned about his agenda you need to be interested in his purposes you need to be praying for His plans. Do you think God has favorites? <laughs> Naray says no. <laughs> Somebody says yes. Anybody else? Anybody else want to vote on this? Does God have favorites? Does God not have favorites? Well, let me ask you a question. As a parent, do you have favorites? Ooh, that's a bad place to go, isn't it? Oh, I know what you're saying. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to make. But listen, let me ask the question a different way. If you have children, more than one, and one of them is uh, the definition of narcissism, they're they're totally self-centered. The whole world revolves around them. The only thing they're interested in is what they want, and uh, they don't really care anything about what you want. <laughs> Are you inclined to to bear your heart to them, to tell them the things that matter most to you? To how about uh, how about a, a, a child? I'm talking obviously about older children now. How about one who cares about the things you care about? That's interested in things you're interested in. That 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 wants to learn from you. Are you inclined to share with them? Now think about it. Sure you are. Would you say favorite? No, because you love all your kids. You do. But you feel more connected with the ones that listen and pay attention. 
you feel like you can speak your heart to the ones that are, are kind of with you. Um, let me tell you something. God is like that. He loves everybody. But he tells his heart to the people that care about what he's thinking. He reveals himself to those who want to know. He does not waste time sharing his heart and his passion and his desires with people who do not care one whit about what he's up to. They just want to get something. I'm here to get my fix for the day. You know, God's going to take care of us. But like any parent, that's going to be offensive to him. He's going to have a hard time. But if you care about what he cares about, if you care about his interest, if you're focused on his, his desires, then he will share with you his heart. And what do you think you would put under this heading, this topic of your kingdom come? What, what is his kingdom? When we are praying for his kingdom to come, what are we praying for? Are we praying for success? Uh, spiritual success and the mission uh, places of the world? Are we praying for missionaries? Probably. Are we praying for friends, family members, neighbors um, that we are wanting to come to know Jesus Christ? Probably. Are we praying for ministries and effectiveness of the local congregations? Probably. Um, when we are praying for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that His purposes in this world will be accomplished. This is a heading. It encompasses a lot of, of, of things. And whatever God is putting on your heart are the kinds of things that, that need to be foremost in your thinking. I know you have needs. Jesus does too. And we're going to get to those in a minute. But what He's saying here is in this model... First of all, recognize your relationship, then recognize who He is, then talk to Him about what's on His heart. First, make that your priority. And when you've had that conversation, you can move on to what you need. And your Father knows that you need it before you ask. A lot of people say at this point, okay, so help me out here. Why do I need to ask? If God knows what I need... He's going to take care of me. Why should I ask? And that's a very good question. But Jesus is the one who says to do it. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a topic. Okay, you might need a car payment. You might need an electric bill payment. You might need a new winter coat. You might need a lot of things that are not bread. But this is a topic. Lord, you know what I need. I'm asking you to provide it. Why should we ask? Well, first of all, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. So, there's another reason. We're told that even though God knows your need, you need to form a connection and, and appeal to Him in order to develop this dependency relationship with Him that connects you and your neediness with His provision. What do any of us have that we have not received? You know, every once in a while you run into these self-made people. It's what we call self-made people. They've started a company. They've been successful. They've made millions of dollars. You know, they, they, they buy all the, the latest fashion 
Um, they have the most expensive accoutrements. They drive the Ferrari. They're self-made people. They have accomplished this. Really? Where did they get their health? Where did they get their opportunities? How did they get to be born in a place where they could pursue their dreams? Where did they get that brain of theirs that seems to click so well? Where did all of this come from? They didn't make themselves. That's utter naivete. That is really crass arrogance. They are totally dependent on God for their next breath. They could drop dead on the spot. They have no concept how dependent they are. Jesus says you need to cultivate the the attitude that I am in a dependent relationship with my Father. And you need to build a history of asking Him and seeing His provision. So that as time goes along, you make the connection that God is my provider. And oh, by the way, you don't have some things because you weren't asking for them. You'd be surprised what God might give you if you ask Him. Now, I'm not talking about Ferraris now, but I'm I'm trying to think of a context where you could need one. I haven't come up with that yet, but I'm sure if you did, he could handle it. But anyway, he wants to build this relationship with you. And then finally, now notice at the end, (laughs) we've talked about who God is. We've talked about his kingdom and his purposes and his work. We've talked about our needs uh, oh, yes, now we need to talk about anything that's out of, out of sync with him. We need to talk about uh, areas where we need to be forgiven. We need to bring those up. We need to have a conversation. Uh, and, and in doing so, we need to think about horizontal relationships. Have I offended anyone? Have I caused anyone else grief or pain? You know, um, I, I, was in a, I was in a marriage counseling class many years ago when I was in school. And my professor gave a way of bringing up things that we would like to see changed in our spouse's life. He called it a love sandwich. I'm serious. Just bear with me. Um, and he said, Here, here's the formula. Beware of formulas. Um, you need to say, honey, I love you, but... And then you point out the problem, and then you end with, but honey, I love you. I'm getting all kind of people going, hey, listen, don't try this at home, okay? I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he, he was usually better than that. I don't know if he got that out of a book or what, but it does not work. What happens when you say that? Honey, I love you, but then, then when you say, honey, I love you, what are they waiting for? But, yeah, I'm, the other shoe to drop. All right, what did I do wrong this time? Don't, just don't go there. Don't ever, ever, ever. Don't associate loving somebody with fixing them. Fix them on another occasion. Just love them on, on, the, on the one and fix them on the other. Don't get the two mixed up because they, they have a hard time going together. By the way, don't, don't live under the illusion that you can fix anybody either. You think you can change people? Oh, man. You need to go back to human nature 101. There's only one person in the universe that can change anybody that I know of, and that's God. And you may as well give up trying. You can pray for people, but don't try to fix them. I'm on a bunny trail, and I don't have time to go there. But anyway, 
there's, a, there's an assumption here. There's an assumption that as we come to God and talk about our issues, that we are willing to forgive people who have issues with us. That we are willing to release them. You know, and, and we remember what I said about God, our relationship with Him is already established, but sometimes our fellowship gets kind of jinked out of order. You can forgive a person who's offended you. And in your heart, release them from what they've done. But you will still not have fellowship restored until the two of you have a conversation. And and, and hammer it out. And when you have that conversation, you need to make sure you don't cast any blame. You know, I, I I probably hurt you when I did yada yada... But, you know, if, if you hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. And it's like, oh, don't, oh just don't even open your mouth. Just keep, keep it shut. A genuine apology says, I know when I did thus and so, I hurt you. And I am truly sorry. Period. If they had a part in it, let God deal with that. So Jesus says you need to come clean with God, but while you're doing that, you need to make sure you're coming clean with everyone else. In another place, he says, if you come to bring your gift to the altar and you remember that you've got a problem with your brother, you need to go fix it. Then come back. Because you've got to, you've got to be a forgiving person. This is not a criteria for Judicial release, this is a reality for being free. You want to be free with God? You have to be free with others. You have to release them. You have to let their offenses go. And then you can be free with God. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be lovey-dovey with somebody else. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have a healed relationship doesn't necessarily mean you need to put yourself back in the line of fire. But it does mean that in your heart you're not holding the grudge and bearing the weight. You've let it go. Just the way you want God to let it go with you. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. Some people find that an odd phrase to be here in the Lord's prayers. Like, why God doesn't lead people into temptation. Why would he even tell us to say that? Well... Uh, let me uh, explain very quickly that um, what Jesus is really saying is, Lord, you know my weaknesses, you know my problems, you know my struggles. Guard and protect my life in such a way that I don't end up in places where I'm likely to stumble. Uh, you, know what I, you know what I'm going to get into <laughs> and, and where my Achilles heel is. So guard me in ways that I don't go there. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And everything, every time you're tempted, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it. That's a promise. So no matter where you land, there's a way out without sinning. That's a promise. But by the same token, we have weaknesses that, that we need to be guarded against, and we're asking God to to guide our path in such a way that we're protected from those things uh, as much as possible. And then notice what Jesus does not put at the end of the prayer. 
In Jesus' name, amen. He doesn't say that. Do you notice that? He does tell us to pray in his name. He says, whatever you ask in my name will be done for you. But he doesn't add it at the end of this prayer. Why? Because it's not a magic talisman that we tack onto the bottom of a prayer to say, okay, God, you've got to do this. It's an attitude with which we come to God. I don't come on my own merit. I don't come on my own terms. I'm coming because of Jesus. I'm coming in His name. I have the right to call you Father because of what Jesus has done for me. And that's how I'm approaching you, Lord. So, I come in Jesus' name. And because of that relationship, I can ask. Well, we're going to continue our study of prayer in the next week or two, but at this point in time, Ron is going to come and lead us to the Lord's table as we uh, move to the end of our worship time this morning.